We're continuing our series this morning in Ecclesiastes after we paused uh, last week to focus on the work of our mission team. And uh, somehow I ended up with some extra time today, so I'm going to take just a moment, okay? Uh, And and I want to say thank you uh, to Hunter Rackley, his team. I know Heather was tremendously uh, helpful in putting together uh, that special day last week. Uh, And also Ben Barlow uh, is on that missions team. Thank you very much. I know that for me, it it was a very inspirational day. Uh, every, every one of our mission partners that got up here, I just wanted to go and be with them and help them and be part of what they're doing. Uh, it was, and that was the intent. That was Hunter's vision. He was like, listen, our mission partners, they're out there doing so many amazing things, and you are part of it, and you need to know that and see it and feel it and look in their eyes and see the passion that they have for the work that they're, that they're involved in. And so thank you for that day. Uh, thank you for all the work that you put in. And, and God bless uh, our mission partners and, and the efforts that we're all involved in, right? It was just amazing. Uh, I want to take a moment, though, uh, now that we're back in Ecclesiastes and focus our attention uh, on the message of Ecclesiastes. Uh, if you remember, that word, Ecclesiastes, uh, is a Greek word, which is it's a, a bit odd, isn't it, that there's a Greek title to our Hebrew, original Hebrew Bible. But it's a carryover from the Septuagint, which was the original Greek translation. But that word, Ecclesiastes, actually means literally leader of the assembly. Now, within my text in my English Standard Version Bible, it's translated within the text as preacher, leader of the assembly, preacher. In the Hebrew, it is Kohelet. And that's what it means. In the Hebrew, it means leader of the assembly. I'm not sure that they had a word exactly equivalent to preacher. It might be that the translation is better suited to say teacher. As that's what he's doing, Kohelet, throughout Ecclesiastes. He is standing as the teacher. And his message is quite clear, and it can be quite depressing. He identifies himself as the son of David, king in Jerusalem. And so our natural conclusion from that is that it's Solomon. And some of the things that he talks about as his things that he's tried to gain satisfaction makes us also think that this is Solomon. It's not for certain, but it's most likely Solomon is Kohelet, the teacher from Ecclesiastes. Solomon describes then life under the sun in terms of a long line of fruitless attempts in achieving fulfillment, satisfaction, all ending in Hebel. Hebel is translated probably in your Bible, vanity. In the Hebrew, he's saying Hebel, and it has more than one meaning. And that's the problem with translation sometimes. We don't have a word that exactly carries over into our language all of the weight and meaning of that one word, hebel. But it's, it's an emptiness. And it is something that does not accomplish what you hoped it would. And it leaves you in a state of disappointment. 
and that's hebel. Chasing the wind is another word that he uses over and over. He says, whatever we might imagine in this earthbound existence under the sun that we might suppose would provide meaning and purpose, Solomon experienced it to the fullest extent. He's been there, he's done that, he's got the t-shirt, and he's here to report the results. So we don't have to go that way. And he says that it all ended in disappointment, emptiness, and a gnawing desire for more. It's not enough. While I was reading through these passages, I came up with the title of this sermon, The Purposeless Driven Life, the antithesis to Rick Warren's book, The Purpose Driven Life. We seem to be driven to so many things that end in disappointment and the purpose that we had hoped what we would gain from that, it just doesn't happen. It's an emptiness. The study of Ecclesiastes, uh, it, it, it proposes with us, for us, in reading it, some very real challenges that are present throughout the book and also in this particular passage. This particular passage is, seems like it's about politics and money, so... Matthew just dropped the mic, and here I am. <laughs> I have to talk to you about politics and money. Thank you, Matthew. <laughs> but some of the challenges uh, have to do with translation. I just mentioned that. If we have trouble with translation, then we also have problems, serious problems, with the actual meaning and then further with application. How do we, without proper translation, come up with Meaning and, and application. We have ways around that, and, and honestly, I'll try to point out some of the places where I'll just say I, 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 we're not certain what he was saying. But the overall message is not affected in any way. It's just within one particular passage it could be. There's also discontinuity, a doubling back, and abrupt changes. Throughout the book and within this passage, we can address some of those issues just by uh, realizing uh, the literary device that's being used. Why is he doubling back? This passage right here, and the reason I'm, I'm framing this up is because I don't want you to think that I'm trying to make the passage say something that it's not saying. I'm just trying to, when I jump around in these passages a little bit, I'm trying to acknowledge his structure. Okay, and the reasons that he doubled back. This is a conclusion of the first half of the book, this section. So I can't very well get up here and say in conclusion to everything that we've been talking about. But he is rehashing, reemphasizing, and driving his point home that finally will you kill these hopes and dreams that you have because they're not going to work out. And that's what he's doing here. He uses a chiastic structure, okay, and so I'm going to end with the middle. And the reason is because it, it's amazing that Solomon did this all these thousands of years ago. But literature teachers, just close your ears while I botch this up, okay? Because uh, this is what I know from reading just this last couple of weeks about this. But a chiasm, 
is, as I understand it now, <laughs> uh, is structured so that the beginning is parallel with the end. And there's internal parallelism here, internal parallelism here, and then parallelism between the two. It's like paralleling parallels. It's amazing that people can think up this stuff. <laughs> okay, and then the next is parallelism within itself and also parallel with the next to last. And then focusing to the middle. And so my conclusion is the middle for that reason. Uh, just acknowledging his structure. He did it. And that causes some difficulties with putting together a sermon, but uh, the message is clear. There's also, within Ecclesiastes, as you know, we've been learning together over these last weeks. It's a negative and humanistic uh, perspective. It seems devoid of the gospel. And that is our hope. I mean, the, the gospel is why we can get up in the morning, and that's his message, though. We can, we, we can address those issues, though, by uh, relating to the full revelation that we now are privy to. Solomon was not. We know now the end of the story. So I'm going to start in verses 8 and 9, which stand outside that structure that I just described to you. <laughs> Another difficulty. But I'm going to use 8 and 9 as part of my introduction. I'm still in an introduction. And, and this is a powerful message, guys. I mean, it, it has really impacted me. I hope that I can communicate it to you. Uh, and, and just pray that I'll be able to as you're sitting there. <laughs> Because it, is, it, it, it changes lives, the message of Ecclesiastes. But let's read, uh, if we would, uh, verses 8 and 9 by way of introduction. If you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter, for the high official is watched by a higher, and there are yet higher ones over them. But this is gain for a land in every way, a king committed to cultivated fields. What did you just say? Solomon, you're not a farmer. You, you are the king, but you're, I, I'm, it, it, this, is, this is a very difficult passage, guys. It really is. I have read behind no less than ten scholars who are experts in Hebrew and interpretation of this passage, and there is no total uh, a way or ability for a group of people to agree on exactly what he's saying. But I'm going to take my best stab at what I have come up with based on what these experts have said. Okay, what he's saying, what he's describing, a context of corruption. We are living within a context of corruption. The world is broken. And there are ways that a Christian should 
and should not react and interact within this context of corruption. So here's my best stab at it, okay? But in all, an advantage for a land is this, a king for the sake of agriculture. That's how he ended that passage. So he's saying, although the teacher recognizes the corruption is inherent, abuse is inherent in any political or government system, he's not an anarchist. We have to operate within it. The king representing the entire government is on balance an advantage rather than a liability to the entire nation. And the example that he uses to make that point is agriculture. And believe it or not, in this modern world where we think that the city is supporting us, it's not. It all comes back to agriculture. (laughs) We have to eat, and you can't eat a piece of gold or a building. And so that's why it boils down to that. In In society where anarchy prevails, no boundaries or property rights can be maintained. Access to wells and all this infrastructure, okay, common resources can't be fairly regulated. We have to have government, right? In, in our day, it's the bridges and the roads and, and the hospitals and all of this infrastructure is necessary. And without that corruption that's within the government, you also lose, by the way, that infrastructure. He's saying in this passage that we live in this corrupt, broken world, and government is evil. It causes the evil, but it's a necessary evil. He says in the beginning that we should not be amazed at it. You ever seen the movie Mad Max? They, they remade Mad Max. There's an older version of it. Mad Max is like this end of days anarchist world. It's crazy. So we have to ask ourselves, and the teacher is saying, ask yourself, do you want to live in the Mad Max world or the Hillary Clinton world? Election days coming up. Now, this is amazing to me. Some here would say that's there's no difference. <laughs> some, some will say, that's obvious. Yo, this Anarchy versus, you know, complete uh, organization. That's politics, and people disagree. Now, speaking of corruption in politics, though, it is election day, and the U.S. is coming up on Tuesday. Now, there's a lot of pre-election going on. It seems like a very tight race. And the whole world is paying attention. It's amazing to me. It is. It floors me. Ask me about any politics in any country other than my own, and I know this much. Zero. I don't know anything about it. But people from all over the world are paying attention to what's going on in the United States of America. It floors me. I, I, we are perceived Americans, I think, worldwide as arrogant, but I don't. Because, I mean, we, we assume that. But I don't. It amazes me that so many people, this is just the state of the world we live in, right? People are paying attention to that. It matters to the world what's going on in America. 
and I, I, I am uh, floored at how much I can be drawn into it and how much everyone seems to be so drawn into the fight. Two people just standing on the street, and they'll break out into a fist fight over their person that they believe in. The teacher says, do not be amazed at the corruption. And what he's saying here is, do not be surprised. It's the broken world that we live in. Do not be overwhelmed and do not be diverted from your mission. Because Christians in this world, we have a mission that has nothing to do with who wins the election. We need to be involved. We have to be the salt. We have to be the light of the world. And we have to be involved in these communities that we live in. And part of that is go vote. Okay? I voted. We should vote. We should be involved. But that's not our mission. Regardless of which person wins, regardless if America stands or falls, it makes no difference to God. God is in control of everything from the beginning of time until the end of time and out into eternity. God is in control, and he can use leaders. He will raise up leaders for his purpose to accomplish what he's trying to do. That has nothing to do with what we're supposed to be doing here. That's his business. I have one vote, and I will cast my vote, and then I'll, we are to be about his business. Andy Stanley said, there's three things that I think we do. We respond incorrectly to this corruption that we live within in three ways. We are amazed and overwhelmed in three ways. Andy Stanley said, you you should look this message up. He said, stop scaring the children. And he was talking to people above 40. Because we, people above 40, if, if you're younger than 40, this may apply to you also. He said, we have to stop scaring the children by forecasting these doomsday prophecies about who wins the election in whatever country it is. It doesn't matter whether it's Russia. Maybe there's going to be some world government someday, and there will be forecasting the same kinds of things. And, and, and we, we, te- we, we get overwhelmed and caught up so much in that system, this corrupt system, That we lose focus and we're scaring the children. Aren't we supposed to be teaching them that God is in control? That he is the one that we should look to and to trust? So we need to stop. It's not our fight. It's not our fight to be proclaiming which political party is the party of God. Because neither one are. They are his instruments. He is the king, and he is in control. And he might use the next leader of the United States to execute judgment upon the world or on the United States or whatever it is that he's doing, and we just trust in him. We do not trust in any handouts from the government. Okay, so we need to stop scaring the children, for one. Also, we need to stop playing the victim. There are a lot of groups in the world that are acting the part of victims. And I understand it. Listen, the reality is 
what the preacher, the teacher is saying in Ecclesiastes is that there is corruption. There is injustice. People are being wronged. It's not right, but it's not our fight because we have not been wronged, Christians, brother and sister. We do not want to ask God to give us what we deserve because we know what we deserve. We are the beneficiaries, even though we are the perpetrators of pain in our family. When people start complaining too much, we say, uh, you seem like you need to go to the bathroom. Not because they look constipated. <laughs> but every bathroom I've ever been in has a mirror. And we need to go to the mirror and start complaining about how we are complicit in this context of corruption. We caused the pain. We sent Jesus to the cross. And he paid our debt. We are the benefactors. Although we are the perpetrators of pain, right? So we, we, sh we shouldn't be caught up in this context. And we should not be overwhelmed and distracted from our mission. We dishonor and we disrespect our creator when we complain about how the filthy lucre of this world is distributed. My son, Carter, I love to lavish gifts on him. And I, I try not to give him too much because I know it, it spoils us, right? But he just came back from a trip to Greece, his sixth grade trip. His phone's better than my phone. Now imagine if I took Carter to one of our mission partners uh, in India to the orphanage there where Moses uh, is, 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 is trying to manage and, and minister to those little children. And I took Carter there. And Carter's out playing with the little orphan boys. And one of the boys has a soccer ball. And it's tattered and worn and beaten. And it's barely even a soccer ball anymore. It needs to be pumped up, but he has no pump. And Carter starts fighting with this orphan over the soccer ball. Now, how is that going to make me feel? I'm going to grab him by the back of the we mumbling things because we can't say the actual words. You know, I'm say, son, all that I've given you, and you can't see that this, this boy, this orphan boy, he has one thing. Are you going to fight with him over this one thing? You dishonor me. You disrespect me because of all I've given you. And that's how God feels, I believe. When we bicker and complain and worry and grab over all this stuff that's in this existence under the sun. And he says, why are you arguing with the orphans? You're a child of mine and all that I've given you. How dare you? We expose our lack of belief. We actually don't believe him. Or else we wouldn't be arguing and bickering and quibbling over all this junk down here. It's not our fight. I understand why there are those who are fighting over it. This is all they have. But that's not our fight. We need to stop playing the victim, Christian. Because we have an inheritance that's incorruptible. We're not orphaned. 
we should not be bickering and complaining about the scraps off the table of this kingdom because we have a seat at the table. And we should be ministering to these people in compassion and love, not worried about whether we have as much as they do or not. We have infinitely above what could we could ever imagine or hope to think for or even ask for above what they have, and we need to share that with them. And we lose our ability to send that message whenever we quibble over these things. I'm still in my introduction. I, I don't know how I'm going to make it. But we'll, we'll get there. So we need to stop scaring the children. We need to stop playing the victim. And we also, by the way, need to stop playing the Savior because when we engage in this context and, and we tell people that, yes, you have been uh, hurt, it is not fair, I'm going to help you, I'm going to make it right, I'm going to make it better, we're not the Savior. We're learning here in Ecclesiastes that all this stuff that we're trying to make them feel better over is going to end in disappointment anyway. We're enabling others to ignore the real problem when we try to play the Savior in this context. We're not the Savior. We're His servant. We're His ambassadors. And we need to represent the kingdom. We're not being the Savior. Three, three ways we need to not be uh, amazed at the corruption in this world. We can exist outside it because our real home where we truly are going to because we came from him. We're going back to him. See, we're, we, we don't have to be involved. It's not our fight. It's not our business. We're about other things. The main idea for my message is this. I, I don't know if they have any slides for this, but any purpose, this is what the teacher is telling us, okay? And we're going to get on uh, through that's the introduction, verses 8 and 9. But... Kohelet, our teacher in Ecclesiastes, is saying, any purpose established and accomplished under the sun will end in disappointment. That's his message. Now, there's going to be some things within that any that we consider virtuous. And we may right now be banking on some of these things. We're holding on to some of these things as the thing that gives me purpose. There's some good things in here that the teacher's going to say, that's not it. When we truly understand, though, what's under the sun, what, what we're saying when we say under the sun, this is a true statement. And whether you believe this statement or not, it is the message of Kohelet from Ecclesiastes. This is what he this is his conclusion. Any purpose that you establish and accomplish under the sun will end in disappointment. It's not the answer. It's not the solution. And that's what we're going to see in, in the verses that, that follow. There are four disappointing pursuits. More than that, but I'm highlighting four, okay, in the following passages. We're going to skip over... 18 through 20, because that's the conclusion in that structure. But beginning in chapter 5 and verses 10 through 17, 
we see some call for the corruption. There is a context of corruption that we live in, and there is within this passage a cause for corruption. Money, the love of money, is a primary cause for all the corruption in the world. In verses 10 through 17, let's read those. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity, or hebel. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much. But the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. There is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt. And those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness, in much vexation and sickness and anger. In these verses, the teacher is saying that money cannot satisfy you. And he gives us some reasons. Verse 10, he just states the facts. The fact is, and he uses one of those parallelisms, synonymous parallelisms. And he just says, money doesn't satisfy. The following verses, he substantiates it. He proves it. He gives us the reasons why. Why is this? One thing that we pursue, money, why is it that it can't satisfy us? In verse 11, we see that it's insatiable. He says in verse 11, one more time, when goods increase, they increase who heat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? There's never enough. When you get more, you need more. <laughs> he knew that all those years ago, didn't he? I mean, we say that today. The more you get, the more you need. John D. Rockefeller was asked, he's a really, really rich guy, if you don't know that. Most, most people do know that. He was asked, how much does it take to satisfy a man? They asked him that for a reason, because he had so much. It's like asking Solomon. He had a lot, John D. Rockefeller. How much does it take? His answer, just a little bit more than he had. It's like that carrot, right? The little thing on your head, there's a little fishing pole going out there. There's a carrot on there. You've seen that in the cartoons. And, you know, you're like running to, it's like trying to get to tomorrow. You never get there. It's always just out of reach. You always think that that's going to be it. That next level house, that next level salary, man, how? Imagine what I could do if I had that level. And then you get it, and you're like, where did it go? Because the more you get, the more there are people surrounding you that want it, that need it, that take it. It's not the answer because it's insatiable and it can't satisfy you. Elvis Presley was born in a shack with nothing. Two-room shack. This is true. Elvis Presley. At the end of his very short life, by the way, he was being pumped full of drugs, propped up. 
so that, I mean, why? Well, why does he need to be propped up? So he could keep all of the minions, all of the leeches that have attached themselves to him, so he could keep them in their lifestyle. He had so much, but it wasn't enough. It's never enough. In verse 12, we also see money can't satisfy because it's burdensome. He uses an antithetical parallelism here. Uh, the first is opposite of, of the second. In, in verse 12, let's read that one more time. He says, Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. So he's setting up this contrast between a poor person who doesn't have much, but he sleeps well because he's, he's not overwhelmed by and burdened down with the worries. But the rich man, he's, he's worried about everything. He's the first one to work and the last one to leave. Increasing wealth increases worries, and it robs us of peace and sleep. This is a reason why. Kohela, this is, he's just reasoning with us. This is why it's not going to satisfy you. Because it's very burdensome. Weighs you down. Trying to stay ahead of the market and the mortgage, the, that ever-increasing mortgage, because you buy another house, you buy a bigger car. Driven to worry and to what end? Driven to a purposeless end. This is one of those things that we try to achieve, and it, it ends in purposelessness. We're driven to nothing. Uh, in verses 13 through 17, I'm not going to read through all those verses again, but there is within that a parallel to the book of Job. I came in naked, I'll go out naked. Blessed be the name of the Lord is what Job said. He, he figured it out. <laughs> but we see in those verses that money is unsecure. The hoarder has already lost his money in his mind. That's why he's so worried, apprehensive. He's hoarding. I need it. I have to hold on to it. The thing you hold on to for security actually robs your security. Tim Keller, in a book that he wrote after the 2008 crash, called, this is a long title to the book, Counterfeit God. The empty promises of money, sex, and power, and the only hope that matters. He's like a modern-day Kohelet, preaching the book of Ecclesiastes through this book. He gives an account of suicides that occurred right after that crash, the global economic crash of 2008. And some of I mean, we felt it, right? Our, if you had any savings, it went down. <laughs> My house... Uh, that I have back in the States, I mean, it took a huge hit from what it was valued when I bought it to what it was valued immediately after. Everyone took a hit, but some people who were holding on to that. Here's, here's some accounts. The acting chief financial officer of Freddie Mac, the Federal Home Loan Mortgage Corporation, he hanged himself in his basement, the chief executive of Sheldon Good, a leading U.S. real estate auction firm. He shot himself in his red Jaguar. A French money manager who invested the wealth of many of Europe's royal and leading families. He slid his wrists and died in his Madison Avenue office. A Danish senior executive with HSBC hanged himself in the wardrobe of his suite in Knightsbridge, London that he was paying like 500 pounds a night for. 
over what? See, what they thought was giving them security actually took it. They thought that money was giving them power, but it was wielding power over them. It lorded over their lives and took their lives. We're some messed up people. A bad venture took everything, their everything, what they thought was everything. And that's what Ecclesiastes says way back then. He said, you'll lose it in a bad venture. It's unsecure. You can't really count on it. It's gonna, when, when you really put everything you have into it, it's going to leave you broken, wounded, miserable, and possibly even dead. If you really take to heart what the teacher says in Ecclesiastes, you will find that what these men did is not really so crazy under the sun. It's not crazy at all under the sun. What's the point? Under the sun. If you really go down that road, you will find that we have some commonality with what they ended up doing under the sun. Canterbury Tales, it's a long list of tales, chaunters. Canterbury Tales, and one of those tales is the Pardoner's Tale. There's three, many of you probably know this story, but there's three young men, and they're like, okay, we're going to solve this problem. One of, one of our enemies is death. We're going on a quest to find death, and we're going to kill death, and we're going to rid humanity of this plague of death. So they're out trying to find death, and they come across this old man, and they're like, ah, I know where it is, certain tree in the forest, go to this tree, you'll find death there. They went to the tree, and they found a vast treasure chest. They're like, wow, how fortuitous for us. And they forgot about their quest to find death and kill him, and they were just partying in their physically emotionally, and just like, wow. The youngest went out to get some food and wine to help them in their celebration. On his, he also bought some rat poison, and he poisoned the wine. Because he's like, I can have it all for myself. Little did he know that the two men that he left behind had formulated their own plan to kill him so that they could split it. So he came back with the wine, they stabbed him to death and drank the wine in celebration and died. And the old man was right. They found death at the base of the tree because of what they were treasuring. See, what you think is going to give you the satisfaction actually takes everything from you. And that's what money does. I also found in the uh, skipping over 18 through 20, And going on to chapter 6, in verses 1 and 2, that was a context of corruption and the cause of corruption. And now there are some consequences of corruption. 
Let's read verses 1 and 2. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind. A man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor, so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires. Wow. So you can actually beat the system, apparently. Yet, God does not give him power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. So even, apparently, even if you beat those negative implications about what money cannot do to satisfy you, and you actually get the carrot, you catch up to it, and you get it. He has everything. Yet God gives us the power to enjoy. Now, I'm not exactly sure what all is in view when he says power to enjoy. The power to enjoy, it may mean health and vitality or the length of life like Elvis Presley or just simply the peace of mind of knowing that I am what I was made to be and I can enjoy this existence under the sun because I know of the reality above the sun. Whichever one it is, we do know this, that God gives us the power to enjoy life along with everything else. And so this man defied all the reasons just, men, just mentioned that money cannot satisfy, and he lacks nothing. His pursuit of money led to prosperity. He, 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 wasn't, he, he wasn't that man who said just a little bit more. He said, it's enough. I've got enough. And yet, he didn't have the power to enjoy it. Regardless of whichever reason it is that he didn't have power to enjoy it. The consequence of corruption is the lack of ability to enjoy the life that God has gifted us with. So even even if you beat that other system, you can't beat this one. Luke 12, 16 through 20 says, Jesus, it's a parable, back into the the full revelation, right? And the words of Jesus, they just penetrate through all of the disparity that's in Ecclesiastes. And he tells the other story. And he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. He he ran out of places to put things. He had too much. And he said, I'll do this. I'll tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. That's what Ecclesiastes is going to eventually tell us to do. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required. He didn't have power to enjoy it. This is one way you don't have power to enjoy it. And the things that you have prepared, whose will they be? Kohelet, the teacher in Ecclesiastes, says a stranger. They'll they'll belong to a stranger. Everything that you did was chasing the wind. So prosperity, even the prosperity of verses 1 and 2 cannot satisfy. Neither can long life and family. Here's some virtuous things here. Our family, let's read verses 3 through 6. If a man fathers a hundred children 
and lives many years, so that the days of his years are many. But his soul is not satisfied with life's, with life's good things. And he also has no burial. I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. For it comes in vanity and goes in darkness, and in darkness its name is covered. Moreover, it has not seen the sun or known anything, yet it finds rest rather than he. Even though he should live a thousand years twice over, yet enjoy no good, the power of which God gives us. Do not all go to the one place. Wow. Without the power to enjoy life given by God, long life in a large family cannot satisfy us. That represented in that day the ultimate blessing. Long life, big family. Ultimate blessing. And our families are something that we, we pridefully even take satisfaction and we invest for years and years and years. The teacher says, if you're counting on that for your total satisfaction in this life, you're going to end up disappointed and miserable. That's what he's saying. Long life in a family can't do it. The teacher, he contrasts here a mega Methuselah. 2,000 years he lived. Contrasted with a stillborn child who did not ever take a breath under the sun. And he says, the stillborn child is better off than you without the power to enjoy your life. You see? I mean, he says it right here. You're better off dead. Rather than waste your life trying to get all these things under the sun. And so now it seems logical that there are so many people who end their own lives. Because they come to the same realization. But there is an answer, right? This section of Ecclesiastes is the culmination of the first half, as I said before. And what the teacher is doing here is he's driving home the point. He's reemphasizing and stating previous points more emphatically. And he's driving home the point that nothing under the sun can satisfy you. Just stop with all of your efforts. It doesn't work. He's been there and done it. It includes some of these virtuous things that we just mentioned. The modern world is obsessed with youth, isn't it? This is our version of long life and a big family. If you can just look young until you're 70 years old, that will satisfy you. And people in our modern day, they will sacrifice longevity of life for the appearance of youth. We are messed up. We're so messed up in all that we do. We're chasing the wind. Are you counting on your children to satisfy you? The teacher says it's not going to work if you're living vicariously through them. It will not satisfy he warns that this is also fleeting. Every new and current pursuit that we come upon, we believe this is it. This is the one. Yes, I, I thought I needed money, but that was, that was sinful. But now I'm investing in these beautiful children, and that will satisfy me. There, there is that God-shaped hole, right? 
and your children don't feel it. Verses 7 and 9, I'm not going to read those verses because I don't have time. But verses 7 and seven through 9, he says, if you finally, if I've finally convinced you that you're better off dead than this materialistic pursuit, and you think you're going to turn to wisdom now, let me go ahead and end that also. Because that's not the answer. The teacher says that that also is going to end in disappointment in verses 7 through 9. And what he's doing in this conclusion of the first half of Ecclesiastes is he's painting us into a corner. He's taking away this and that and that and whatever it is that you think is going to help you. And we're finally, finally, he has us in this corner. And all of our hopes and dreams have been crushed. There's nothing under the sun that's worth living for. And that's where he's trying to get us to be. It is a good place. As long as we can, stop looking down and look up. That's what his objective is. We need some good news here, right? I mean, we need some, this is, it's a bad spot. We're in a bad place. And we need, we need something. We need a champion. We need a Savior because it's just not worth it. We look around at all these things. It's just not worth it. His focus, though, after he makes us realize that our, the quench, we cannot quench our thirst. We cannot satisfy our longings. His focus, though, is in verses 18 through 20. Let's read those verses. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun, the few days of his life that God has given him. For this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil. This is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. This passage points out that God gives our life. God gives our wealth and possessions. God gives the power to enjoy them. God gives our station in life. God blesses us with our work. God keeps us sustained in our joyful disposition. It's all from God. We're made for him. We belong to him. He is our purpose. He is our portion. And he has provided all that is needed. There is no reason for us to be clutching and working and in our human effort trying to get what God has given us. The Apostle Paul summarizes this for us when he writes, All things are yours. All things are yours. And he goes on to say, And you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. That's a beautiful picture of security and provision. We need to stop holding on to these things that will not satisfy us. Paul takes it further in his instructions to Timothy. 
He says, command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty. It's okay to be rich. It's not okay to be haughty. Nor to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God, who gives us richly all things to enjoy. Going on to urge them also. Be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share. That's the secret. We have to put God back in the context. In these verses, 18 through 20, nothing material has changed. It's the same context. All the material things are still there. You still have your job, your salary, your family, but he has reinserted God, and it's a perspective thing. It's all a matter of focus. If our emphasis is upon the gifts, then they will consume us and ultimately destroy us. If our emphasis is on the giver, the one who made us, he owns us. He owns everything, and we are part of his kingdom, and we serve joyfully in his kingdom. If our emphasis is on the giver, the gifts are just peripheral and can be used for his glory. This leads to true contentment and joy, which he says in verses 18 through 20, that is your lot. Be content with where you are, and don't be griping and complaining about what everyone else has. I'm going to end with one illustration. It's from the South Sea Islands of Borneo. It's like near Malaysia. In between Malaysia and the Philippines, Borneo, you, you know where that is? Borneo, yeah. Am I saying that right? Borneo. In Borneo, they trap monkeys. <laughs> the funniest thing. But they need to catch monkeys. You, you may have heard this illustration, but it's worth revisiting because it's so powerful. It illustrates what he's saying here. But th th they need to catch monkeys without killing them. They, whatever they're doing with them, they just trap monkeys. And they trap monkeys with coconuts. Crazy. They can't shoot them because they need them to be whole. So they take these coconuts and they hollow them out. They put a hole in one end so that the monkey can get his hand in. And then they put a shaft in this end and a chain, and they put it on a tree. They scatter some green bananas around, and they put some green bananas inside. And so one of the monkeys finds the prize, his precious. And he reaches in the coconut, and he grabs the green bananas. But his hand won't come out because he's holding on. He's trapped. He's stuck. He's not really trapped. It's his own desire that traps him. It's his own focus. It's what he's clutching to that trapped him. And now he tries to get loose, but he's stuck. And he's caught. They catch him. He never gets away. He's done. Brothers and sisters, we, we have to evaluate in our own lives what is our green banana? What are we clutching to? Money? Even religion? Are you clutching to some rage that you have against this machine of corruption? We can be free. We don't have to be trapped. Just let go. 
just let go and with open hands say, God, I'm here because you made me and you own me and my life is yours and I'm happily in your service and with joy I will exist down here below and I will spread the good news to everyone because we need good news. All of those orphans, they need good news and we have the news. We can't be focused on that soccer ball though. And we can just exist here knowing that he has given us more than we can imagine that's above the sun. We have an inheritance that's incorruptible. And that is the secret that the teacher in Ecclesiastes is trying to get us to see. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful today for all that you have given and provided to us. Thank you. And thank you that we can exist here in a state of love, joy, and satisfaction in you. You are our portion and you are our healer. You are our provider. You are our everything, not these scraps that we see in this existence. But you are everything. And we cling to you for our hope and for our satisfaction. Thank you, Lord. And bless us now as we go. And that we might shed the truth and the light of your gospel into the world that surrounds us. In Jesus' name, amen.